Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded in the J. Christian Bay Rare Books Room at the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or at whatever hour you are tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I will be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. It was supposed to be the war to end all wars. At the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, the guns on the battlefield fell silent to mark the signing of the armistice that ended World War I. Yet for all the hope of peace and a return to normalcy, the First World War, as it would later be called, merely marked the opening of a century dominated by global conflict. As we come upon the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, the Our Missouri podcast is launching a three-part series on Missouri and the Great War. Each episode in the series will focus on dif- different aspects of the war, ranging from soldiers and civilians on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, to how the conflict has been remembered in memory and monuments. Today, in Part 1, we are speaking with Andrew Hebner, Associate Professor of History at the University of Alabama. He holds a Ph.D. in History from Brown University and is the author of The Warrior Image, Soldiers in American Culture from the Second World War to the Vietnam Era. His most recent book, Love and Death in the Great War, was published in 2018. In it, Ebner documents how people throughout the United States found meaning in World War I from the trenches to the home front. Welcome to the Our Missouri Podcast, Andrew Hebner. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. And when we look at the origins of your book, what inspired you to write a scholarly monograph about World War One and really the not so much the causes but the meaning of the war? Um, yeah, so it, it actually in some ways goes back pretty far for me. Um, you know, one of the characters in the book is Arthur Hebner, who's my my grandfather's brother. And growing up, um, I had heard a lot about him from one relative, in particular my dad's cousin Jim. Um, I, so it, sort of from a young age, I'd heard about. I, uh, my relative Arthur, I'd heard this dramatic story where he was shot on the morning of the last day of the war, um, ended up dying a couple weeks later, saw the Bible, which I still have, that has his still bloodstained today from that wounding. So it kind of, it took a hold of me pretty early on um, as, as a kid. And I ended up becoming a historian and I wrote another book, as you mentioned, on some later wars. Um, and then kind of long story short, came back uh, to... Arthur's story in World War One, and, and thought a lot about how to kind of widen it out, um, and it ended up including some other families that I think we can talk about in a little bit. Um, but basically, the, the the choice to focus on individuals, um, you know, as you probably know, I mean, we, there's a lot of books out there about the, 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 about Woodrow Wilson, the war's causes, um, diplomacy, and and the and combat, and all those sorts of things. Um, I wanted to do something kind of more intimate, and I'm not the only one that's done this. There's other authors that have this same kind of focus, but um, I wanted to do kind of zoom in on everyday life if I could, and kind of and marry it with a, a, a broader story, a reinterpretation of why, you know, kind of what, how meaning was mobilized during the war. So that's a big thread in the book. But I also I wanted to to really kind of dig downward from that into everyday life in a, a small number of individual families and kind of look at how Americans lived this war, this war that we don't 
really remember much about today. We have imagery from a lot of our other wars about that same topic, just due to the kind of the huge amount of output in, in Hollywood and other venues on our other conflicts. So World War One, I, I think, is a bit um, is a, a bit a bit less um, prominent in our collective memory. So I wanted to really one of the goals of the book that sort of percolates. I don't, I don't know if I say it in the book, but I I wanted to really kind of bring us back into that era and look at what, what war does to daily life, how it affects relationships, romance, um, and that sort of thing, and then marry that story again with a kind of broader reinterpretation, actually, of how the state mobilized some of those very same ideas about family and love and so on to to help justify the war. So that that's um, that's the basically what brought me to the, to the book and what my approach there is. Now, as you're kind of beginning the research process for this project, what collections and archives, you mentioned, of course, family connection, but what other collections and archives did you visit to gain mm -hmm. information for the project? Um, well, a lot. Um, I used um, a lot of stuff from the National Archive. Well, a big part of the book was kind of piecing together. This wasn't, again, the main thrust of the book, but I wanted to really you know, accurately piece together the movements of the, the the families and the soldiers in the book. So I used a lot of sources from the National Archives, these unit histories, and each, you know, unit regiments and divisions and so on, all in their own histories, and trying to kind of triangulate all that was a, a challenge. Um, to, to kind of fill out the story of my main folks, I used uh, the papers of a, a good number of soldiers that are held in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, at the um, Military History Institute there. I used a collection, one of my main Sources was a collection here on this campus, the University of Alabama, for my the character uh, wearing Houston. A uh, bunch of sources, a bunch of archives from Wisconsin, um, stuff from Missouri, um, other ones in Alabama, you know, where my main people were. And then uh, the nurse in the book, Natalie Scott, her papers are at Tulane University. And then supplementing all that, though, I did quite a lot of work, and I'd never done this really before, but I did a lot of work with the online. Um, databases that are kind of filtered through Ancestry.com. Um, there's a lot of great, I'm sure you, know, you and a lot of your listeners will know about this, but you can, it's not just sort of census records, it's military stuff and death records and all kinds of things through there. So I use that um, to help piece together, you know, who lived where and who, when, you know, who siblings were born when and that sort of thing. So it basically was an effort to triangulate, again, across official kinds of sources, private papers and letters and so on, and then all that record keeping that um, Ancestry um, curates. So that, that 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 was the main body of sources. Now you mentioned kind of some of the different people you focus on. Uh, obviously, your own family connection, uh, mm -hmm. but also you said Louisiana and Missouri. How did you find those individuals? Were they just names that popped up in in the archives you were at, or did you have um kind of a storyline already developed where you could see mm -hmm. focusing more on them? How did you really uh, focus on these individuals in these different states and locations? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so it was interesting. When I, when I conceptualized the project, I had um, the set of letters uh, that we can talk about later on from the Missouri couple. So I kind of had them. They, they were clearly going to be a, a, one family. And then my own relative, Arthur, was going to be another family. Although, as, as you know from the book, I, I think there's not – I actually don't have a lot of primary stuff from him, ironically. Um, we don't have really any letters from him other than the one – postcard I talk about in the book. Um, so I knew I needed some other, I wanted to, to round out the story with some other people. And so I kind of auditioned a bunch of other possibilities and looked at, you know, look, there's a lot of really good 
kind of search searchability now um, through the internet of archival collections as well. So I, I searched around and I had some parameters. I wanted, you know, I wanted some kind of geographic diversity. Um, I wanted to have a nurse in the story, and that's how I found Natalie Scott. And so you just sort of search around, and you find, and you have to find people who have a good record. Unlike you know, my unlike my relative Arthur's, you want people that have a good solid base of sources and stuff that you can look at. Mainly letters is what I was looking for. So um, in in kind of doing that canvassing, I came upon um, uh, George Waring Houston here in Alabama, who has a big set of letters. Like I said, right across the campus from where I am now. Um, Natalie Houston, I found she's a Tulane, and then the Missouri couple I had, and and then Arthur. But the, the kind of the the thinking was I didn't, you know, I had this kind of story taking shape that ended up tracking these themes of, of the war being fought for family and love and this sort of thing. But I didn't, I, in a way, I didn't want to kind of cherry pick, if you know what I mean. Like I didn't want to find soldiers who whose letters, you know, said the things I wanted them to say in a way. I, I So I didn't, I, I wish I could say that I auditioned hundreds of different people and sifted through their letters and found the ones who were really rich. But it really wasn't like that, actually. I, I looked, once I found these few that had good collections and I dug into them, I, I kind of got hooked on these characters and then used them. And I think it's actually telling that they do talk about the things that I'm tracking in the book and they helped fuel that argument. But I didn't, I didn't sort of hunt around till I found, you know, the one out of a hundred doughboys who was talking about love a lot and that sort of thing. I, I found characters I thought were compelling and then they were talking about the things that I sort of hoped they would. So it's not, you know, it wasn't a perfect science. I, I can't say that they, they perfectly represent the country. I don't know any group of four or five that would actually. So it's a bit, it was, that's sort of how I did it. It was sort of deliberately haphazard, if you know what I mean. Now, for the kind of Missouri focus, uh, mm-hmm. you, you found the couple, obviously, from Wayne County. Could you tell us a little bit yeah. of the backstory behind how you came into possession of those letters? Sure. Yeah, it was interesting. So I, I went to grad school at Brown University in um, the late 90s, early 2000s, and I had a student there who was an undergraduate. I was a teaching assistant, or maybe I was teaching my own class. I don't remember, but I, I think I was a TA. And she was in my class. She was an undergrad, and and she kind of knew about my interest in war society. I was working on my dissertation at the time. And she told me she had this collection of letters from a couple in Missouri named Elijah and, and May Bees. And she had actually bought them. She was a kind of a collector of old historical memorabilia like that. And she had bought them from an antique dealer in Missouri. I, I forget how she came, how she found them, maybe uh, uh, through eBay or something. Um, and so she had this big box of letters and she just gave them to me. And she said, you know, I've, and she had cataloged them and read through everyone. She put them each in an envelope and wrote down the subjects of the letters on each one. But she just said, you know, I, I just don't know that I'll ever do anything with them. So she gave them to me. So anyway, I had them for many years. And then, you know, several years ago, seven, eight years ago, whatever, when I was kind of turning to starting this book, the Arthur story in my own family was going to be, was, was one hook for me, as I said earlier. But then I'd always wanted to do something with these letters. And I actually had had undergrads here in Alabama help me digitize all of them or scan all of them and I transcribed a lot of them. And so and, it, and so anyway, when I decided to do this book that was going to kind of join the stories of regular people with the broader story, I they were they were an obvious fit. And they and in fact they, you know, they along with Arthur were kind of the, the at the heart of the book project in my mind in the beginning. So that's how I got the letters. I used them 
extensively in the book. They're, they're a little bit rare in that we have all of her letters, too. It's pretty common in letters collections, as you probably know, to have the soldier's letters because his letters came back to the States. Um, usually it's family's letters that would go to the war zone, you know, to get lost or or destroyed or whatever. He sent all of her letters back to her in kind of bundles, so we have all her letters, too. And so they were a great spine to kind of uh, run through the book. And then when I was done with the book, I had actually erased this uh, a couple of years earlier. I donated them to the State Historical Society of Missouri at Raleigh. Yeah, and so that's where they are now. It's a fascinating collection, yeah, and it's really, it's really adds to the overall uh, society's collection on really war letters that document on just World War One and World War, but World War Two as well. So it's a yeah, fascinating exactly. collection that's been added. So uh, we do appreciate yeah. that, that your donation of those. Now, in researching the lives of Elijah and May Dees, what did you learn about and what did you try to emphasize in your, in your book about how World War I impacted not just simply Missouri, but even localities in this kind of tiny Wayne County? Yeah, that was an, it really one of the neat things about this research was it, it, it kind of uh, pulled me into that world, you know, some worlds around the country, these three or four locations that I focused on. And I, like I said earlier, I wanted to, I really wanted to, to, to merge in the book kind of coverage of the war zone with the home front uh, and not just the home front via, you know, the New York Times and, and Woodrow Wilson speeches and, you know, kind of big national registered stuff like that. I really wanted to burrow down into localities. And so I used uh, a lot of the newspapers from these locations in Wayne County, the Greenville uh, newspaper, and some other ones. And it was a fascinating, you know, you know, it's a part of the country I'm not super familiar with. And so I quickly realized, as you said, it's a very rural area. You know, May Dees' high school, she was in high school during the, by the, you know, in the last kind of, or in the year that we were, intervening in the war she was in finishing up high school and i you know she had a class of seven or eight people her letters are filled with just really rich good detail and just daily life in that part of missouri in the early 20th century and in fact part of the reason i donated it was i think others could use this collection you know who would have different sensitivities than i would about and then things they wanted to write about could really use her stuff but just great stuff on kind of local life and farm you know the, the life of a farming community interesting stuff about the railroad that, that came through there. Um, I did a bunch of research with kind of local history sources, you know, unpublished histories of Wayne County, that sort of thing. And I learned a bit about, uh, as much as I could, about the place. I really wanted to kind of try to bring the place alive a little bit. And I learned a lot about it. I mean, it's a, it's, it, it's a part of the, you know, the country and actually in Missouri more broadly, and, and largely true that much like the South, you know, was quite skeptical of World War I, and actually much like a lot of the country was. A bunch of the, the congressmen uh, that voted against the war and against conscription were from New Jersey and also from Alabama, one of my other locations. There's a lot of suspicion in Missouri of, and this you know dates back generations before that period as well. Um, you know, suspicions of big banks and big industrialists in the East Coast and that sort of thing. And, and the, since the war, to some critics, seemed to have those fingerprints of those entities on it, that there you know there was this there was a percolating sentiment that the war was being driven, we were being driven into the war by, by industry, essentially, and by um, those who stood to gain economically or to, to be harmed by the war economically if we didn't get in. So there was actually a great deal of suspicion in Missouri about the war. But then, like everywhere else in the country, at least in kind of visible public ways that historians can look at, 
they there's a rallying around the flag. And so if you look, this is one of the interesting things about, you know, public opinion. Some people think if you look at newspapers, you're getting a window into public opinion. And to some extent you are. But but in this kind of in this period, in particular, when newspapers were operating under the advisory gaze of, of the federal government, really, and in and, and this broader climate of, of suspicion of dissent and that sort of thing, there's actually a kind of flattening around the country. If you look at newspapers in rural Missouri or in Alabama and Wisconsin and New Orleans, the places I looked, you see a very a, a kind of similarity of, of public culture in these newspapers, similar kind of, you know, ads for liberty bonds. And, and you can get a sense of, man, these are really patriotic places. But, you know, you if you know the history of the period, you, you realize, you know, this is a very public-facing and, you know, legitimate and real sentiment, but it's just one angle. So my sense is that in Missouri, like in Alabama or other places, there's, there's still, there's simmered kind of a, unease with the war, but there also, there was a full-throated support from the soldiers fighting it in Missouri, as there was in these other places. So so I think in some ways, it was a place that was a little more suspicious of the war um, in the beginning, uh, but certainly rallied around its soldiers. The, the local papers throughout the time of, in the conflict kept close watch on the boys, as they would have called them, who were in the service, and a close watch on their, their well-being. So so anyway, that's a little bit of what I learned about, about the, the region, but is a fascinating place. That's very true. When we think of uh, Elijah and May Dees, and you don't have to give the full kind of answer here, obviously, because people can read the book and find out their story, mm-hmm. but how was their relationship that you found in the letters? Obviously, you said you don't, you don't have all of them, and some of them are, are, are not, obviously, mm-hmm. preserved, but how was their relationship throughout the war? Well, it was interesting. It was, um, I'd say, tumultuous is one word that comes to mind. They, you know, I, and this is, of course, you know, you get to know them only through their letters, and it made me think a lot about this. You know, um, how well you get to know people through that. Whether I could, you know, someone could get to know me or or my relationships through through letters, emails, whatever I've written. So there's that whole subject of you know how close this gets us to them. But but I think I feel like I get to know them pretty well, and they they had a very, I, I would say, passionate but tumultuous relationship. There's a lot of they, a lot of um, the war put a strain on them. Um, I think they all, they both brought kind of sharp, strong personalities to the, to the relationship. But then the war is part of the broader point in the book is that the war added new strain of separation. Um, and so that, of course, um, inflames emotions like jealousy and security. There's a lot of concern both of them back and forth about infidelity. And there's a lot of little anecdotes I could tell you about that. But anyway, they, they're both worried about the other one. Straying. Also, imagine you know, and they of course didn't have this comparison to make, but you know, imagine in our own relationships today, you know, having arguments with a spouse or partner or whatever across months. And that's what they had to do. I mean, he would, she would write a letter that would make him angry, and he'd get it a month after she wrote it. And the thing he was mad about might not even be happening anymore. Then he would write back and angry. You know, I can't believe you did that. Blah blah blah. You know, and she'd get that a month later. So. So I'm giving a talk on this in D.C. in a few weeks called Slow Motion Romance, and that's kind of what, what I'm getting at. I mean, it's it's really, again, they weren't comparing it, of course, to Internet, texting, all that stuff. They didn't know that. But but it must have been agonizing, and I know it was. They talked about how agonizing it was. Also, from a safety standpoint, I mean, you know, if he wrote, wrote to her from the war zone, like, I'm doing fine, you know, that would only tell her once she got it how he had been doing a month ago. 
so anyway, their relation, you know, they, 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 was, they made it though through the war and, and they, they were also very, very affectionate and lo- kind of lovey-dovey in their letters. There's a lot of dreaming about the future and having a family and what kind of house they were going to have. So they, they persisted, the, the romantic elements persisted even amid this kind of looming possibility of tragedy. Now, one of the more memorable sections of the book that I encountered was when you talk about Elijah Dees sending a box full of letters that he received from other people, particularly women, back to his wife, May, in Missouri. Could you tell us a little bit of behind that story? How was that? What was the origins of that? And really, how did, from the documents you read, how was that received, if you could, if, if you could find that out? <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting. And this gets at a broader feature of their letters, which is that I have a lot of them, um, but I don't have every single one. I can tell, I can tell on the record that, that they're not all there. And what happened was I think, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to that particular story in a second, but what happened is, I mean, May Dees is the one who appears to have been the curator of these letters. She kept them all. And she actually writes, I know that because she writes in her letters to Elijah during the war, like, you know, I'm saving your letters. I've got an envelope that, you know, is I've got a pile of ones from camp. I have a pile from France. I have a pile from Germany because he was he was there after the war. So anyway, she was the kind of the, the archivist, if you will, of their letters. And it seems that I mean I don't know this for a fact, and I, I, I sort of I'm reluctant a little bit to kind of accuse her of, of this, but it appears from the record, and she has every right to do it, of course. That you know, often he would say in letters to her like, "Man, you really exploded at me in that other letter. You know, what's the, what's your problem?" And and the letters that survive from her don't have that kind of explosion. You know, so I, I have this feeling that she took ones where she was really kind of angry or whatever, and she, she removed them, I, I have the, the feeling. There's also actually a letter in there where they, they're kind of talking dirty a little bit, you can tell, and she then someone, I think her, snips the, the, the heart of it right out, so we don't have that part of the letter. You took a scissors and literally cut it out. My, my point in saying all this is to get to the story you mentioned, which was that they, they both had, there were sort of other men and other women kind of lurking around each of them, it seems. Um, and, you know, again, from the letters, you only get their take on it. But she'd say things to him like, you know, I've quit those that other boy I was telling you about and this sort of thing. And, and he seemed to have women writing to him as well. And at one point, like you said, he, he, he couldn't bear to burn them, he said. So he sends a, a whole bundle of letters back to her to, for safekeeping or just for keeping or whatever from other women besides her. And he said, he, he went on this big charm offensive in that, in that letter. You know, he said, I, I know this is going to upset you kind of thing, and, but I just couldn't bear to part with them. I don't care if you burn them. And I think she probably did because there's, there's no sign of these in their, their record. But yeah, he, he, you know, he's an interesting character. And I, I think he didn't seem to always have his finger on the pulse of, you know, kind of how she might react to things. And, and uh, you know, and sort of out of this weird kind of innocence, I think he sent them to her and, and I don't, and again, this is one of those cases, like I mentioned earlier, I don't have a letter back from her saying like, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. You know, I think if there was such a letter, it's not there. But then subsequent letters from him say things like, you know, I could tell you were mad about that thing, but you know, don't worry, I mean, you're the only woman for me now. And, and so they were often doing this kind of dance where they would, one of them would do something that made the other one insecure or jealous. And then there would be this, this again, long distance and long term chronologically kind of attempt to sort of put out the fire. And that's, that's one of those cases. Before we return to our conversation, let's take a step back in time with Bob Pretty to an event from this week in history in a Missouri Minute. 
I'm Bob Pretty with this Missouri Minute. Some say it reminds them of a dragon when seen from the air, covering most or parts of six counties. It's the Lake of the Ozarks, formed when Bagnell Dam was built on the Osage River. Union Electric Company had started planning the hydroelectric facility years earlier and announced its plans in 1929. The small town of Bagnell underwent a quick metamorphosis, going from a small ferryboat landing to a major railhead where supplies were shipped in. Other towns changed too, such as Lynn Creek, which was moved to higher ground, the original site disappearing under the water. Graveyards were moved, bridges built, roads relocated, longtime family property was bought or condemned because it would soon be underwater. Today, a 94-mile-long lake stretches behind the dam with 1,150 miles of shoreline. 2,500-foot dam, completed on October 19, 1931, stands 148 feet high, tall enough to hide 12-story buildings for seven city blocks. It holds back 673 billion gallons of water. And the lake it created, the largest man-made lake in America at the time, is a major part of Missouri's culture. I'm Bob Pretty for the Center for Missouri Studies. In your book, when you referenced African-American soldiers, you talked about how they saw the war as offering them masculine honor. What do you mean by this term, and could you tell us a little bit about the African-American experience during the war, particularly for soldiers? Sure. All right, yeah, so, well, uh, the it wasn't the, the main argument of the book in terms of the public culture part, the, the kind of the um, mobilization of support for the war that I make in the book, was that it was pitched not only as this, but in, in large part as the intervention was pitched as an opportunity for everyone, all men, to, to sharpen their masculine character and to sharpen the strength of the family somehow. To make a very long story short, there were this, this is a period that, that kind of call resonated because this was a, a period in American history for several decades leading up to 1917 where lots of, especially kind of middle-class white reformer, those kind of people, would have been quite worried about the shape of the family. Um, there were the fears you know, of immigration, industrial industrial work that kind of stripped men of their kind of producer virtue, if you will, and urban vice, all kinds of other factors had a lot of people concerned, as they often are in, in history, about the shape of the family, about the shape of the white family in particular, and, and the shape of masculine strength. And, and there's, there's a famous uh, or a well-known book about that applies that kind of thinking to the 1898 war in Spain that argues basically that that war was fueled in large part by a, a kind of a sense of a crisis of masculine vigor, that we hadn't fought a war in 30 years and so on. Anyway, I see that same kind of dynamic at work in World War One in the way this, the war was pitched as a way for men in this time where gender roles were getting kind of gradually scrambled, women were working more, there's women agitating for the vote, all the other issues I mentioned earlier. Some traditionalists and then those in, in, in public culture and many officials pitched the war as a way to kind of put all that back together, to restore masculine virtue, to put men, to give men manly things to do again, to let them fight in some ways for women and the family. Remember that the American newspapers were filled in 1914, 15, and 16 with tales of the German rape of Belgium and sinking of ships in the Atlantic and so on. So anyway, the war had this kind of chivalric sort of tone to it or pitch. So where this involved black men, to get to your question. So for for African Americans, that argument, although it's sort of ironic, it wasn't in many ways wasn't aimed at them. They were as you I'm sure know are, you know, utterly marginalized still in, in our society at that point. So in a way the, the argument wasn't aimed at black soldiers. They weren't most kind of mainstream white opinion and military officials and federal officials did not envision black men as soldiers when they were in the army uh, during World War One. They were largely shunted to kind of labor battalions and so on. 
So although it wasn't really aimed at them in a way, it, it actually that art had a lot of purchase with some African Americans because for that very reason, which was that it had other sorts of signs of masculine honor, they were sort of deprived of those in a in a very systematic way, with disfranchisement and segregation, and obviously in lynching of, of black men, and and there's not that's obviously that's his own whole story. So service in the military for a long time since the Civil War for black men had been a real, at least it didn't always, it didn't necessarily kind of work or translate, but as a, a potential route to to masculine credibility to, and to citizenship rights. This is a big theme of black service in World War One, World War Two, that you kind of earn, earn. it's a scene that in the black community as a way to earn, earn those sort of withheld rights and, 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 and that sort of credibility. So, so that's sort of how, now, not all African-Americans reacted that way. Some reacted to the war and to the draft by saying, you know, like, no way, I'm not fighting for the, a country that treats me like a pariah. But others, like Du Bois and, and some other uh, black leaders said, you know, let's, let's prove our Americanness, let's prove our patriotism and, and serve in this war. And, then, and by doing so, not, not forfeit our rights, but use that service to hopefully to kind of uh, achieve them in the future. It didn't work that way in the, in the near term after World War I, but in the longer term, uh, um, black military service is a big part of, of the civil rights movement. So that, that's, the, that's a kind of short version but, um, about how masculinity and citizenship work for black people. Uh, now, when we think of the war, it it's kind of serves as the end point for the progressive era, and many women uh, had been involved in the reform movements of this progressive era. How did they view the war, and what were their roles in it, both pro and, and against it? There are very prominent women against it. Emma Goldman is a good example, a radical thinker. But like all, like all, like anyone who was against the war, there was a heavy hand of repression that that met such people, including Emma Goldman. There are new laws against the Senate, the Espionage Act, the Sedition Act, which amended the Espionage Act. So there wasn't much space for anti-war sentiment, at least publicly expressed sentiment. Women, you know, in general, I mean, there's a lot of things that we said about this, but the a few highlights. I mean, women did first of all join. I mean, they contributed very directly to the war effort in a lot of ways. There were some, some several thousand, I don't have the number offhand, joined the military as you know, clerks and nurses and that sort of thing. Another big, big chunk of that kind of participation in the war that went to France, to the war zone, uh, were other sorts of auxiliary workers, they called them, people that worked in, for the Red Cross or were kind of would socialize with the doughboys in kind of a wholesome way with the obvious aim of keeping them from doing less wholesome things in France. So there's a lot of direct participation in the war in, in France. On the home front, it's interesting. I mean, women were encouraged to participate in the war in a lot of ways. There were lots of you know, posters and appeals and so on for women to contribute. But, and there were you know, some that moved into, into jobs that men had vacated, although not nearly to the degree as we would see in World War II. Because a lot of the appeals for women to contribute in World War One were still nested in in dominant kind of gender politics of that period, which which held that women had women there were certain kinds of feminine things that women were good at and should be doing, and that those were the kind of things they tended to be called forward to do, you know, conserving food in the kitchen and and knitting bandages for soldiers and things like that. 
So it's sort of a, it's a dual story. I mean, there's a kind of a, a enduring conservatism about gender roles that the war provokes in terms of women involvement. But then there are also characters like my, my the nurse in my book, Natalie Scott, who pushed at those boundaries, maybe it's not in some ways consciously, but sometimes unconsciously, by being in the war zone at all. And she was, she was over there as a nurse. She worked with the Red Cross and did some other things. But I tell some stories in the book about ways that she really flipped the kind of chivalric script that undergirded the war, in one case saving a bunch of wounded doughboys' lives in a hospital when it was bombed and, and things like that. So the war is often, and a lot of wars have this feature that, for, in terms of gender roles in this period, including in Britain and other places, that they have this kind of dual impact. They, they scramble gender roles, they take men out of the homes, to some extent force women into the workforce, that sort of thing, but they also, the forces of tradition don't go away, and, and many traditionalists continue to, to sort of, you know, worry about that, worry about women leaving the home, and sort of kind of push women, you know, to contribute, but, you know, do so in, in feminine ways, was, a, was like a big part of the, the call that women heard. So it's, it's a kind of, it's a mixed story. Now, thinking not only of this book, but in the future, what, what are you working on now uh, in your scholarship? Well, the, the most, the, um, the current idea for our next book is actually it's it's an episode I tell uh, talk about in this book in, in a paragraph and I'm not I'm positive I want to do this but it's a, it's a, it's the kind of front runner right now uh, which was the Houston race riot in 1917 this was a, a story of the 24th infantry it's an all black kind of proud all black regiment of soldiers were called to Houston to guard the construction site of uh, one of the new training camps for the the Doughboys. And these were black men from all around the country, not necessarily sort of respectful, if you will, of Jim Crow sort of racial mores. So anyway, long story short, they go into Houston, they get in that uh, kind of scrap with the white police who are kind of abusing black women on the street. There's rumors that one of the black soldiers that witnessed this uh, had been killed. In fact, there had been a couple that were sort of beaten they go back to the base, they rally a, a big number of these black troops and, and march into Houston and end up in a pitched battle with the white police and a bunch of people are killed. And this ends up resulting in the biggest, I believe the biggest murder trial in American history in terms of number of defendants. And you know, many, many dozens, I think over a hundred, 19 of them ended up being hanged for it. So the book, there's a book on this, it's, it's not a bad book, but it, it was written in the seventies there's other kinds of sources that are maybe available now. So, so anyway, currently, that's the, the, the best candidate, I think, for what I'll do next. Well, thank you very much for being on the Our Missouri podcast, Andrew. No problem, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, I am your host, Sean Rost. The show's producer is Brian Austin. The opening and concluding credits are narrated by Kevin Walsh. Benton's Perilous Visions is an exhibit of Thomas Hart Benton artwork from World War II that showcases the artist's interpretation of the anxiety, horror, grief, and resolve that permeated American society during the war years. This exhibit will be on display in the main gallery of the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center until spring 2019. Did you miss out on the Center for Missouri Studies fall lecture featuring Pulitzer Prize-winning author Caroline Frazier? Well, a video recording of the lecture will soon be available on the Historical Society's website. If you're looking for something a little more hands-on, the Historical Society's Columbia Research Center will host a family day event organized by Sarah Poff on Little House Life on November 5th, featuring churning butter, making rag dolls, designing marble pouches, and other frontier activities. If you live in southeast Missouri, 
please visit the Historical Society's Cape Girardeau Research Center for its open house on October 26th. This event is a great way to familiarize yourself with the center's material documenting Southeast Missouri history. Cape Girardeau Research Center is located in Pacific Hall on the campus of Southeast Missouri State University. On the other side of the state, in southwest Missouri, the unsinkable Molly Brown, portrayed by Aaron Smither, senior archivist at the Society's Springfield Research Center, will make an appearance at the Monat branch of the Barry Lawrence Regional Library on November 2nd to discuss the rags-to-riches story of the famous Missourian who survived the Titanic's fateful collision with an iceberg. Are you an educator who is interested in developing a National History Day program at your school or using Missouri's primary sources in your classroom? The State Historical Society of Missouri is participating in several educator workshops in October and November that will provide tips on exhibits, performances, programming, and finding effective resources within the Historical Society's vast collections. The National History Day workshops will be held at the Gentry Middle School in Columbia on October 25th and November 29th. National History Day in Missouri coordinator Maggie Mahan will join senior archivist Katie Seal for a digital collections workshop at the Curtis Laws Wilson Library on the Missouri S&T campus in Rolla on November 2nd. Maggie will be in St. Louis on November 9th for a workshop at the Thomas Jefferson Library on the campus of the University of Missouri-St. Louis with senior archivist Claire Marks. Finally, did you know that your history, yes, your history, is important? Join senior archivist Claire Marks and Bicentennial Coordinator Michael Sweeney at the Freedens Peace United Church of Christ in New Melly on November 2nd for an event on discovering your Missouri history preparation for the upcoming State Bicentennial in 2021. To register and learn more about these events, visit the State Historical Society of Missouri's website at shsmo.org events. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org slash our-missouri.